Welcome to Funded by Source, a new conversation about expanded consciousness, creativity, ritual, and entrepreneurship in the digital age. Funded by Source is here to remind you what you already know deep within. We are here to weave a new story of abundance, one that's beyond logic, spreadsheets, and hashtags. My intention is to activate ripples of courage for you to share your own voice and medicine with the world, trusting that when you follow the whispers, you are fully funded by source. In the world of outsourcing, we will explore the things that you can only insource, revealing the unique path that you came here to walk, creating your own definition of success. I am your host, Xenia, an award-nominated storyteller, guide, and creator of the Conscious Social Media Method. I am here to hold space of curiosity, play, courageous communication, and unwavering trust as we dive between the physical, the digital, and the unseen realms. Before we start, I have one question for you. Are you open to miracles? My guest today is BJ Miller. If you haven't seen his TED Talk, What Really Matters at the End of Life?, I highly encourage you to watch it before listening to this interview. I intentionally did not ask BJ to repeat his story of getting in an accident where he lost his three limbs and how that defined his life and what he does. It's a very moving, very inspiring, and a beautiful talk. So if you can, go and watch that before we dive into the conversation. Dr. B.J. Miller is a longtime hospice and palliative medicine physician and educator. He currently sees patients and families via telehealth through Metal Health, a company he co-founded to provide personalized holistic consultations for any patient or caregiver who need help facilitating the practical, emotional, and existential issues that come with serious illness and disability. BJ has worked in all settings of care, hospital, clinic, residential facility, and home. He is led by his own experiences as a patient, and he beautifully advocates for the roles of our senses, community, and presence in designing a better ending. His interests are in working across disciplines to affect broad-based culture change, cultivating a civic model for aging and dying, and furthering the message that suffering, illness, and dying are fundamental and intrinsic aspects of life. His career has been dedicated to moving healthcare towards a human-centered approach on a policy as well as on a personal level. He has given over a 100 talks all over the globe on the topics of death, dying, palliative care, and the intersection of healthcare with design. His work has been covered by Oprah Winfrey, PBS, The New York Times, Goop, Krista Tippett, Tim Ferriss, the TED Radio Hour, and so much more. And he also has a book titled A Beginner's Guide to the End that he co-authored with Shoshana Berger. This interview is quite different from other interviews you can find out there with BJ Miller. And we go into the topics of nature, presence, meaning, what happens after your TED Talk becomes extremely popular, and how external accomplishments are not the answer. We also go pretty deep into the topic of conscious social media, into the power of psychedelics, allowing yourself to be a work in progress, and creating the space to receive love. I am getting more and more ideas from this conversation on how to bring my work 
out there into the world on a bigger scale, thanks to BJ. And I hope it moves you and brings a remembrance of your own path to you as you listen to it. Enjoy this conversation with BJ Miller. And if you share it on social media, tag at Funded by Source on Instagram and Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E underscore health also on Instagram or find BJ Miller on Twitter at BJ Miller MD. Before we dive into the episode, I want to tell you about my go-to marketing tool and the sponsor of this episode, Tailwind. Pinterest scheduling with Tailwind helps you grow your business with more traffic so you can spend time doing what you love. For me, it's walks in nature, cacao, and yoga. You can create your pins right from your Tailwind dashboard and Tailwind Create is a new tool from Tailwind that allows you to create beautiful pins faster than ever before. You can generate, personalize, fine-tune, and schedule pins to drive traffic to your content in no time. I personally love Tailwind and use it and could not recommend it enough. Quick pro tip, I recently reached 1 million views on Pinterest and I attribute it to two things. One, using Tailwind to schedule and automate my pins and two, repurposing my Instagram reels and TikToks by pinning them to my Pinterest boards. If you haven't gotten into it yet, give it a go. And if you haven't tried Tailwind yet, go to tailwindapp.com slash funded by source to get $30 off a paid plan. That's Tailwind app, T-A-I-L-W-I-N-D-A-P-P.com slash funded by source. BJ, welcome to Funded by Source. I am so grateful and excited to talk to you as connected by my dear friend, Jasmine Jenkins, who was my guest on episode 125, talking about alchemizing grief. And as we dive into this conversation here, it's such an interesting thing because I feel like I know you, but you don't know me. So uh, my only invitation is that we just get playful and take this conversation, whatever it's meant to go. That sounds beautiful to me, Ksenia. Thank you. I'm, I'm very glad to be with you. So normally I start these interviews by reading my guests' Instagram bio out loud and then asking, you know, this is your bio. This is how you present yourself in the digital world. What is it that you actually do in a day-to-day life? And in your case, your business, Metal Health, has an Instagram, but I didn't find you on Instagram. So I decided to go a slightly different route and it's going to be even more fun than that. So what I did is I looked at some of the comments underneath your very popular TED Talk, What Really Matters at the End of Life. And there is just so much heart and so many gems in what people are sharing in those comments. Have you ever looked at them? I have. I kept up with them in the earlier days when that talk came out. I haven't looked in a while though, but I'm with you. They were, I loved looking at them. They were so inspiring and thoughtful and intimate and lovely. Yeah. I haven't looked in a while. I will though now. So I got you. I filtered some of the ones that I think are really beautiful and I'm going to read them out loud and then we're going to let that guide our conversation. And by the way, I also noticed that just in the past 18 months or so since we've been mostly indoors, 
a lot of this online content and TED Talks that has this, you know, inspiring edge to it, spiritual edge to it, it's really garnering attention. And there's a lot of people who are being exposed to it and truly connecting with it more deeply than I've ever seen it. So that's just been such a beautiful thing to witness. A lot of these comments are newer. So let's go into them. There's two that I've picked for you. The first one is, I dare you to watch this and not cry from the intense love and life that he radiates. He, that is you, Bidji. And then the second one is, I come back to this video each time I feel sad, depressed, or hopeless. It reminds me to live again. Hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Okay. Gosh. So my question to you from that is, what is reminding you, BJ, to live today? <laughs> well, that's a good question. You know, I this day, in many days, a couple of things that reliably get me out of bed, probably the most reliable, and this day is no, is no different, is just these animals I get to live with. I have two cats and a dog whom I adore and who I learn much from from whom I learn much. (laughs) And they are also sort of proxies for the rest of the natural world that we are a part of. And so I would say one answer to your question would simply be these animals and, and nature, another opportunity to go feel sunlight or feel breeze or just be in the elements of this weird world. That that's a, that's a mainstay for me. And sometimes that means getting out in the woods. Sometimes it means thinking about it. But, you know, the thing with nature is it's everywhere. Uh, even if you, especially if you include our human nature, it's all over the place. So that feeling part of that big, big rhythm, that big thing that I don't totally understand, that does a lot for me, both in what I know about it and all the curiosity that I have for what I don't know about it. So that that's an, a daily morning anchor for me. Have you always connected to animals and nature? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, as long as I can remember, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. It's so interesting. Right before we started recording, I was walking from my house to my studio and animal medicine came in so strongly. I just knew that we would go into the area of nature And I was thinking about all the hummingbirds that I get to witness living here in the Catskills and this feeling of awe when I get to witness hummingbirds mating dance or hummingbirds fighting over the sugar water that I made them. In those moments, it's like my breath, I'm not even sure where my breath is. I'm part of my breath or I'm part of my soul or I'm part of something bigger. But those moments of uh, being connected to nature through those tiny, tiny little points of connection. And I love that you brought in animals. Is that something that you recommend to your patients? It is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, and sometimes I frame it as nature. Sometimes I frame it as beauty, sometimes as awe or wonder or sometimes mystery. But one way or another, I'm talking generally about much the same thing. And yes, so with patients, with families, Absolutely. You know, it's such a, just as we're doing here in my own daily life and, you know, yours too, you, you know, you, 
and it can feel going through illness can be very lonely making and very painful and can feel like you're being yanked from life you know and you can forget that it's still part of life and you that you're still part of life and we humans sometimes weirdly oppose nature rather than realize that we're part of it and so anything i can do to help people remind remind people of this bigger context in which they sit from which they can't escape i mean they that we are you know at least in this life we we are always part of something even if it doesn't always feel like it so one way and another, yes, I am often pointing patients and families back to this context of beauty, nature, awe, etc. That has been a, a real mainstay, a very, very useful sort of baseline for anything else that I do. It's one of those things that you mentioned in your talk, TED Talk. It's this sense of wonderment that you mentioned it being important at the end of life, but also really any time. And another thing that you mentioned in your TED Talk that I really feel called to bring up is the story about Frank, where it wasn't really recommended to him to go in a boat in a river because of his health. And he chose to go anyway to feel this aliveness. And the way that you framed it is saying yes to circumstances beyond our control. So how does that show up in your life, this releasing of control and surrendering to the flow of life to connect to something that is bigger than us, that is very alive at all times. Well, you know, that's a daily, of course, it's a work in progress for me too. You know, I, I'm not free of despair or feeling alone in the world or unseen or unheard or misunderstood or all the things that can yank us around that are pretty dang normal. I, I feel them too. But I do, you know, the surrender you're pointing to, sometimes I do it begrudgingly. You know, sometimes it takes the form of simply just work. You know, by work, I mean, I mean, I love work. I love my work. And so I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but just the expectations of a day, whether it's a patient or their family member needing something or I promised them something or whatever else, me fulfilling my promise to them, that oftentimes is a surrender. You know, especially when you're dealing with serious illness, things don't go the way I want them to go either, oftentimes, not just the patient. So there's a sort of a daily, that's just one example of things that happen in any one day that, you know, right size me, you know, that make it clear that I'm not the only game in town, you know, and yes, like we started that I'm a part of a big, big game. And that's wonderful. I'm, I can't not be a part of it, even how, no matter how I feel. But, you know, there are times where, uh, you know, that doesn't always feel good. So like I say, sometimes the expectations or the needs of others can feel burdensome or trying or like I'm not up to it or, you know, or I'm, you know, what do they see in me? I, you know, if I'll get insecure and I feel like sometimes I'll watch myself feel a need to manage expectations and, and talk people down from thinking that I have any, anything to offer. And I watch myself do that, not infrequently, probably to protect myself, sometimes to sort of, including protect my own little depressive moments. Sometimes we hang on to our miseries. But, you know, one way or another, in sort of a positive light or a negative light, not to be oversimplified, daily life, daily life has it all. Daily life has the things that pull me up and out of myself, tell me things that I make me submit and surrender to flows that aren't just my own. Sometimes that feels good. Sometimes that feels gnarly, but it always is always happening. I mean, I really, 
I've spent a fair amount of time in school, you know, going through college and medical school and residency and all that stuff. I'm, you know, relatively hyper-educated as things go by some measure. And, you know, one thing that's become clearer and clearer to me as I've gotten, I just turned 50. So as I've kind of moved through life, everything I, I used to turn to the books for or teachers for, now I, I don't spend a lot of time studying. You know, I, I, daily life has it all. I mean, it's just right under our noses all the time, whether we choose to see it or not. Just about everything we need to know is sort of right in front of us, whether we can grasp it, apply it, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, there's more to it, of course. But all that is to say that um, one way and another, daily life is, is my teacher. And within daily life have, you know, umpteen cues of, of me needing to make sure that I realize I am not, I am, I'm, there's more going on than just me and my thoughts and my feelings. And like I say, sometimes that feels wonderful and as a relief. And sometimes it's annoying and intrusive, but it, it just is. Mm. You know, I appreciate that you shared about those moments of being insecure and not sure about whether you can make the difference that people are seeking. And I have those moments often. I'll wake up and I'll be not sure, you know, who am I? What am I doing? And I forget any kind of positive testimonials I've ever received or how alive I've felt working with clients and doing my work. And I'm curious, you know, with you, when I look at your bio, there are so many accomplishments. And the human condition tells us that once you get XYZ recognition, that doubt, that internal doubt won't have as much space to play out. But my experience has shown that's not true. And it sounds like yours as well. So I'm curious, where do you go within yourself to source the remembering of how powerful just you showing up as you is? Mm, that's a great point. I mean, you know, I think one of the in some ways, it's I find it's almost the opposite. The more I've achieved by some measure, then I'm tempted to think the more is expected of me, uh, the more there is for me to screw up. So sometimes it builds in a way that I find flattening. I love, I do best when people have low expectations of me. Honestly, I always have noticed that. If I'm not expected to do well in this or that, that's when I actually generally do well. So anyway, but to one way or another, to I completely agree with your point, Ksenia, that you know that a list of accomplishments does nothing to narrow that gap inside of myself around my own insecurities. If anything, may heighten it. Like I said, you know, I I think of I've come to think of the accomplishments, the resume stuff, the way that's been. Of course, like my education has served me in innumerable ways. You know, and I'm very grateful for it. And it's land has a, much to do with how I've gotten here. And one thing, one accomplishment per se has a begat another. And uh, by some map of my life so far, you can, I, I could draw a line of sort of hopping from achievement to achievement. And it's pulled me forward into all sorts of new experiences. And yeah, great. But that doesn't quite do the whole thing justice. I mean, I think for me, the reason I'm glad to have ever won a trophy of any kind or a prize or, you know, I went to, you know, I went to big, big name schools, you know, so I'm glad to have done that and worked hard to do so. If for no other reason, even though there are other reasons, but the main thing I'm happy about that is so that I get to say, like, I know 
by virtue of having accomplished like an Ivy League education or medical school or whatever, I get to know in my bones that those achievements don't necessarily amount to what others expect them to amount to. In other words, I have sort of like, I would love to be wealthy so that I can know in my bones that wealth doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm glad to have gone to Princeton so that I know in my bones that that actually doesn't make you a better person, you know, because if I didn't have those in the way I'm wired, if I didn't have some of these external accomplishments, I'm sure I would be wondering, I'm sure my brain would say, gosh, if you had only gone to Princeton or if you'd only blah, 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 you know, then man, then you would be cool. Then you'd be great. Then everything would be all right. I'd be so tempted by that grass is always greener, especially looking sort of upward mobility wise. But I get to know having done some of those things that they don't really amount to all that much. And for that, I'm very grateful because like I said, otherwise I would be on the hamster wheel chasing accomplishment if I didn't have good luck of having some accomplishment early in my life to know that life is not just about accomplishment. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I'm curious when the TED Talk came out and with it, a lot of press and uh, probably requests to collaborate partnerships and opportunities. How did you manage that? And how did you tap into where you're meant to put your energy? Yeah, I struggled with that. It made me realize that one of the ways I've proceeded through life, especially as a physician entering a sort of a helping profession, and just by my makeup, um, you know, one of the hardest questions you could ask me is like, what do you want, BJ? What do you want? Uh, I don't know. Oftentimes, I don't know if that's a hard question for many people, but I don't know how to answer that question without invariably saying something like, well, what do you want for me or from me? You know, like I... I realize that I've relied heavily on just simply reacting to life, reacting to things that have come my way. Yes, I've set out some intentions here and there and made good on them or not. But much of the time, one day to the next, I am really, I've gotten, whether it's lazy or actually, you know, if it just is something beautiful and service oriented, I don't know, we could probably summarize it in myriad ways, but I, you know, it revved up like the it, the TED Talk and then the sort of public face that came along with that meant that requests and, uh, you know, requests were coming in at a new scale. And before I had any sort of public attention, I was already up to my eyeballs just being a physician in a, a busy academic medical center. And just being connected to many people and feeling a lot of love from and for a lot of people. That just meant I was not short of people needing or wanting something from me or with me. And I, that's how I just made my way as I basically responded to those things. And then the TED Talk, et cetera, as you're pointing out, came, came with a sort of a scale to it that meant my old way of just simply responding to what's in front of me was inadequate, was not couldn't because it was not it became impossible for me to respond to everything in front of me and i have i'm still working on that that i have not dropped my old way of being this sort of responsive reactive thing i'm still kind of clutching to it it's the it's the way of being that it helps me feel like i am listening it helps me feel like i am participating it helps me feel like i'm responding to others that i'm connected to others that i'm serving 
you know, there's something about the life of service of in the health professions. And so there's a piece of me that very stubbornly clutches to that way of being. And then, of course, because of that, really, really struggles. These last five years or so have been a new kind of struggle of having more options in front of me than I know what to do with and I could possibly make good on. And I've yet to really mature or refine that way of being so that I learn how to say no in a constructive way, to protect time and space to do the things that I find more important or whatever. I'm really, that is a work in progress, Ksenia. I I have not gotten there yet, but I'm working on it. But it has been very tricky and has really participated. It has had a lot to say of how all the sort of good things that have come my way in these last several years have felt at times have felt to me more like a burden than a gift or something overwhelming, something that crowds out uh, silence, crowds out just friendship for its own sake. You know, and so I, it's been a real challenge. It's a wonderful. I'm so I'm glad for the challenge, but man, it's a pain in the ass sometimes. And I, I really am. Ask me again in a year. We'll see where I get with it. And such, I had so many uh, different thoughts coming as you were sharing that. One is, you know, when do we arrive anywhere? You say I don't. You know, you said something along the lines of, I haven't figured that one out yet. Ask me a year from now. But when do we actually figure something out? It's like in a psychedelic journey, we think, okay, this is it. Now I'm ready. I'm going to come out of the journey. I'm going to write out my journal and I'm going to go implement it. And my life is going to be different and I'm going to be different. And then you're like, whoa, that was not it. There's a whole other level. It's like in a computer game. We keep going deeper and deeper and something else is revealed along the way. So when do we ever actually arrive with anything? I mean, it's a good question. And it, it may be you're pointing to this is something there's a, it's a dynamic, it's sort of a, a relationship of moving parts. And on some level, I certainly agree with you that it is never ending. And how wonderful is that? You know, like uh, life is endlessly complex, endlessly layered. And how cool, you know, on some level, I, if I can wrap my, get my head around that and really settle into it, and that allows for the pressure to come off. Because, uh, you know, like you're saying, there's relief. Like if I realize that I'm never going to get it, if I'm never going to grasp it and own it and be sort of graduate on some level, well, then that takes the pressure off me to do so, to pretend to to do so or to perform in a way that allows me to graduate some stage of life. So I do love that thought and I do feel that in my own life in many, many ways. And yet, and still, and I have felt this is another sort of piece of this puzzle for me since my injuries 30 years ago. I have the world you and I are talking about, you just mentioned in that statement, is the world as far as I can tell, is life as far as I can tell. And yet, and, you know, one layer that plays out is our sort of our daily life as social creatures, as part of society that has it has a lot of, you know, it's an invented place, but it's a shared invented place and in that it has rules to it and has laws and it has, if you do this, then this or that happens and predictabilities and things like that. And we could poo-poo that because it isn't real on some level. It is a sort of a, an invented world. But I don't want to ignore that invented world either. I feel in this way, the phrase like a secular monk, I feel like I've sort of committed to a way of being in the world 
that includes, that doesn't force me to cloister myself, that stays in the game, even though he knows it's a game. And I'm always trying to kind of find a way of being that can allow me to cut across these various layers to inhabit this sort of shared social world as made up as it may be. But in that social world, there is this sort of causation and this sort of, if you do this, you get that, et cetera. And I, I do want to respect that. So I'm not, I don't want to pull myself out of that mundane piece of the puzzle either. That's where so many of the people are, um, or that's where everybody is on some level. And I don't want to abandon that. And even for my own sake, but also for my patients and their families. You know, if I can imagine if someone were suffering with end stages of cancer or heart disease or whatever else, in my, you know, eh, what are you suffering for? Why, you know, why are you afraid you're going to miss this or that thing? You're, you know, the universe is bigger than that. You're, you're never, you know, like if I just sort of patly said, you know, don't worry about all those things you're worrying about, those feelings you're having, because it's never done and you're never going to die on some level. I mean, eventually I can get to those kinds of conversations with people, but you can't get there until you go through a lot of the aches and pains along the way that have a lot to do with this sort of invented world. So for m- professional and personal reasons, I, I've tried to keep one foot in that world and another foot in the in the rest of the world, if that, if that makes sense. So I've bought into a sort of a tension there. Um, but that circles back to your main point. So maybe this tension is just the tension that is always going to be there. It's a tension I've chosen and therefore it isn't meant to be necessarily resolved. So there too, I can take the pressure off. And sometimes it feels exactly like that. I get to look at the game for what it is, feel it for what it is. And if I'm really clicking, I can also, I can be part of it, but not prisoner of it. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. There isn't a shortcut. We can just tell someone, you know, even the simplest things in my experience, like love is everything and just, you know, forgive others. Like all of the things that we hear from spiritual religious gurus over the years, they mean nothing until it's a lived experience. So I'm totally with you. There's no not a shortcut. And when it comes to those societal norms, I definitely want to go a little bit more into secular monk. But before then, have you ever been on TikTok? <laughs> I've never looked at TikTok, but we have. So uh, real quick, I'm a, a friend of mine who's in the digital marketing world, Faye. You know, Faye is, she's amazing. So she she and her partner, Anna, take video segments of talks I've done and they cut them up and put them in little bit-sized morsels and put them up on YouTube and TikTok. So I, apparently I'm on TikTok, but I've never looked at it. <laughs> so there's So yes and no is my answer to your question. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm super glad that your work and your words are being shared there because people are eager for that information and that vibration. And second, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is something that I talk about often when I teach my clients conscious social media and TikTok just blew my mind on that topic. So when we open up our home feeds, whether that's Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, what we see is a pre-curated societal microcosm that we have played a role in curating. And normally it reflects what we think is our norm, what we already are surrounded by in our daily lives. And with TikTok, because the algorithm is completely different, and a lot of the time it's, it's suggesting content from places and people that you would have never connected and crossed paths with in real life, it has blown my mind on so many levels that there are so many various forms and shapes of normal. There's 
And these new generations, you know, the 15 year old kids, 20 year old kids, like the worlds that they, their imaginations create and they allow themselves to live within. It's just so expansive. And honestly, it reminds me of what's possible way beyond where the little box where I tend to put myself because these are the people I talk to for work. These are the people I talk to on social media. And that's kind of my little world, you know, I I live in. Mm -hmm. That sounds beautiful. You know, I I confess that I'm a little bit of a fuddy-duddy with social media and have been very reluctant to embrace it and without having really even tried it. And my business partner, Sonia, and I are both wired this way to be a little bit allergic to it. And yet, even as I say that, I'm aware I have, there are too many people whom I really adore and respect who have embraced it and have made statements like yours just now, which is really compelling and gorgeous. Uh, so I realize I need to reframe what I think of social media and see the opportunity in it. I, I know there's, I haven't gotten quite got, gotten there, but I, I feel like soon enough, there's, I feel an inflection coming for myself where I start to see the possibilities in these constructions, TikTok, et cetera. And I, I think I'm nearing a place where I'm ready to embrace it and experience it myself, not just sort of, you know, populate it with, you know, posts, but to experience it. I'm part of the resistance is I'm so there's so you know there's so much going on in my life already and so many lines of communication that I can barely keep up with. So one of my problems is that social media sounds like just even more stuff to keep up with and I'm already struggling. So even that I probably have to reframe that statement. But anyway, enough from my neurosis around it for a second, but all that is to say, you know what you're describing is is gorgeous. I love this topic. Yeah, well, good. Good. <laughs> good. But I you know, what you just sounds like gorgeous. Yeah. If you want to go deeper into any of that, this is the kind of conversation that really lights me up because the reason I got into social media, I mean, back in the day when I was 15 and living in Russia and I didn't feel like I fit into in real life world and, you know, the things that people around me were into, I started a blog and that that's where I experienced my first sense of belonging. I felt like my interest in philosophy and poetry and fashion and photography all could fit together and could actually be appreciated and seen. And that led me to lots of different iterations of blogs and online businesses. And then when I was starting my spiritual journey in New York City in my early 20s, I noticed that for me, that became like second nature, communicating and translating things into the digital realm, because I've been doing it for such a long time. But there were a lot of people around me, including my teachers, who had so much to offer to the world and just didn't have the skills or the tools or had limiting thoughts or just beliefs that didn't fit what they thought social media represented. And so one of the reasons I do this podcast and I do everything I do is to reframe that and offer social media as a portal for showing up for who you truly are and make an impact. And, you know, a lot of the times people don't start on social media because they don't know where to start and what to say. And for you, one thing I want to share is a lot of the comments on that YouTube had nothing to do with what you said, but had to do with how you said it. One of the comments actually goes, 
what BJ does not say is more powerful than what he says. His eyes, his paws, and his being. And so I think it's the same with social media. It's sometimes us just showing up and not having the perfect words to say, but being there and trusting that we are meant to be there is going to touch exactly the person who's meant to be touched by it. That's what I find to be fascinating and synchronistic and divine about social media. And how do you square how do you square that with how many people are again you know everything I'm about to say is is problematic in that I've just sort of like things I've heard and assumptions I've made. But you're pointing to this idea that social media could be an outlet for us to be more ourselves, more more real in a way, um, more honest in a way. And but and isn't it true that social media so often so often gets co-opted either knowingly or just the way humans can't help but kind of put their best face forward or the what the way they want to be versus the way they are into the world. You know, how do you square that vision of social media with with staying with integrity and honesty and real, realness? How do you square the digital and analog worlds? And maybe another way to put it. Oh, I love that question so much. You know, it's the same as saying that, well, humans are just messed up. If you look at some of the negativity happening in comments on YouTube or even TikTok, it's easy to say, you know, humans are just messed up. Or in real life, you see something that is upsetting and just kind of put in one category. But just like in real life on social media, it's all about each individual being and what they bring. And I really believe that the energy that is behind what we share is even more important than what we share. And people can really sense that intention. And in terms of fractalizing our identities, yes, there's definitely some putting forward our, you know, highlight real and only the good side of things and hiding the shadow. But isn't it the same in real life? You know, buying a shiny card to not acknowledge the grief of feeling disconnected from your partner. People do that on social media and in real life. It's just slightly different expressions of that. So I think we are only responsible for how we each individually show up. And I also think that there's nothing wrong with curating a part of your message and who you are and sharing that part. And no, it doesn't have to be the highlight reel, but maybe it's the part of you that you know will make the most impact. And some of it will be vulnerable and scary to share, and some of it will be beautiful and inspiring. But as long as we remember that we're so beyond uh, those boxes of digital marketing and you know storytelling for our branding, and we're these multidimensional beings and uh, there's just so much when we approach social media from that space, I've just seen miracles happen. I've seen so much synchronicity and connection and it really takes setting really strong boundaries and making sure that once we do become active on social media, that we don't show up from a place of, Oh, I'm feeling scattered and anxious and I need a little boost or let me check my messages just neurotically. We all do that in some way. But as much as possible, creating these invitations within our daily life to, okay, pause. What do I need right now? Do I need to place my feet on earth? Do I need a cup of cacao? Or do I need a glass of water? Do I need to hug my partner, stretch my hands into the air? Or is there actually some message that I know I'm meant to respond on social media? So being more intentional 
before we actually show up and engage creates such a better experience for everyone that becomes a place of creation instead of destruction and reactivity. Hmm. Well, that sounds beautiful. I mean, then how do you, first of all, is the, do you sense that the ethos, you know, I guess this part of the joy of social media is the, the freedom of it. It's not super rule bound. I'm assuming on some level, it's not policed in the way that daily life might be policed just by the limits of time and space. But, you know, I guess because of the question is, do you find over in your life, <laughs> are there moments where you just want to exist in the digital world? Or have you found a way to live your daily life that the analog and the digital complement one another and inform one another? Is there? Yes. How do you, because the world you just described sounds so beautiful, I might find myself wanting to just stay there and not go outside, for example. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder if that actually happens maybe to me unconsciously or to others who spend a lot more time in the digital world playing computer games and things like that. I personally haven't found myself wanting to stay there just because the sensations of taste and smell and touch and air and hearing the hummingbirds mating, all of these things, they make me feel so alive that I couldn't do without them. But I have spent a lot of time thinking about the balance between capturing things as a storyteller and a journalist and someone who, you know, is called to share things online and someone who is also human and finds it important to be present in the moment. And I think for some people, it's more difficult to be able to capture and be present. For some people, it's easier. And for me, I've been able to with practice, find this balance where I can snap a little 15 second video or a photo very quickly. And then that's out of the way my phone goes down and I stay present in a moment. And then I post later on. And with that also, I recently had a medicinal journey where I had a very clear vision on this topic where there's spirit behind content. And the content that makes a true difference is the one that we uh, our stewards for, that we allow those spirits come through us, give it words and let it out. And when it comes purely from the brain of, you know, these are the five things that would benefit to share for my business, it doesn't have the same impact. And also it doesn't have the same alchemy in the process of us allowing it out into the world. And that's something Elizabeth Gilbert speaks so beautifully about uh, the creativity and big magic, where when we say yes to the process of being creative, whether that's a book or a piece of art or a video or something else. In that moment of creation, of us saying yes to it, there is an alchemy that happens. And then it doesn't matter as much what happens to the outcome. And that's something I've been intentionally inviting myself to remember. You know, it's not about the number of likes and views and what people think about it, but how present can I be in the moment of creation and how can I remember that this is actually the most important part of the process? Well, that sounds lovely. I mean, is this being taught? I mean, there does feel like it needs, it requires an updated social contract, an updated ethos. It definitely does. I mean, it seems like the world we live in needs an updated social contract. It really does. I agree with you. Yeah. I, I teach this because I didn't see anyone talking about it in this way. And I've been hearing whispers of 
the importance of bringing this to the younger generations and somehow bringing it into a larger conversation in the world. I maybe I just haven't created the space for it to to hold the bigger conversation yet, but I really appreciate that suggestion and I'm open to being one of the stewards of it. Yeah, well I I hope that happens. It feels like the world it feels essential uh and how all of these things might tip. It feels so powerful, so big that it can be co-opted and these these potentials can be used for good or ill, you know, not to get too simplified again about positive, negatives, good, bad, but but it does feel like it's such a powerful tool that it requires that we need some, I don't know, I don't love rules, but I don't know if that's the word, but some pointers. Yeah, something, at least an ethos underneath it, underlying it, where we get to, you know, and on some level, like, you know, the, an agreed upon way of using these things to what end, et cetera. I mean, some sort of, I don't know exactly what the, I love the word ethos, but you know how, anyway, I, I, I hope you do this, Ksenia. I hope because it just feels like we're in such a precarious moment where we do need big, powerful tools to right this ship. And, and they're not going to come from the outside. They're going to come from the inside. Yeah. So I don't know how do you, you know, facilitate and, uh, you know, make, make this happen. But anyway, I, I certainly hope you do. I certainly really, really hope you do. Um, yeah, not much I can say. I really appreciate that. Maybe a TED Talk is on the deck. We'll see. Um, but the analogy that comes to mind is drugs. You know, growing up, the only thing I knew about drugs is that they're bad. In our family, we don't do them. We don't even consider doing them. We don't talk about them and we judge those who do them. <laughs> and now with the war on drugs being completely dismantled with beautiful new research on psychedelics and the healing that it can provide, there is so many beautiful doors opening up for people to learn about set and setting and having guides and sitters to hold a safe space for us to move within that journey and feel supported and know what we might expect and know how to nurture our bodies and our minds and our souls along the way. I think the same thing is necessary for social media. There needs to be a set and setting. But I kind of took it there and then I stepped to the side. But actually, the topic that I would love to go in with you is psychedelics. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what role it plays in developing and connecting to wonderment and spirituality in end of life, but also not end of life, because when does anyone really know when it's their end of life, really? Right on. And corollary to that statement is when do we actually begin dying? I mean, that, that's that's a really important question. And I don't have an answer to that question, by the way. So I have to say, I mean, as a person, as an individual who's grew up, excuse me, grew up in a similar sort of context of you know, just say no and drugs are bad and, you know, they're, they're a destructive force, um, essentially, in everything you just said. And then from my own experimentations, my own sort of following my gut, my own trimming my own sails, I have forged a relationship with substances, whether it's a glass of wine or tea or marijuana or psychedelics or whatever else, um, and come around to it in my own way 
what I think of as a very healthy relationship that I do believe these chemicals, these substances, this material, you know, is not inherently good or bad, but uh, can be incredibly powerful and useful depending how you use them. You put, bring up set and setting, a very key piece of this puzzle. Intention, you know, what are you bringing into this experience? You know, what are you seeking? It can be a force for incredible honesty and exploration and expansion. In other words, I wholeheartedly believe and wouldn't need research to tell me this, but I'm glad for it. But I wholeheartedly believe that there's a potential to use drugs, chemicals, medicines, whatever we want to call them, as life-affirming, constructive vehicles. I wholeheartedly believe that in my own experience. And now it's where it's this exciting moment where data are, are stacking up to support that. And we're getting more nuance. We're getting beyond the sort of binary of drugs, good or bad. But like so many things, depends how you use them. So in the data, you know, so putting like a, my physician hat on, you know, in palliative care, my field, palliative care, one of the big things we talk about is um, is meaning, you know, how to how to find meaning in life or make meaning in life. Like what is this, what is this journey all about? And it comes up for people who are, uh, you know, who are very sick, which challenges their sense of self and their challenges their sort of their perceptions of meaning, especially at the end of life when times the clock is ticking down and you look back over a life and you look forward for what little time you may have. And you know, a lot of people I talk to don't really have a good question, good, good answer for the question of like, what what did this mean? What has this meant? What has your life meant? I I do love the, let me pause there. I mean, so that, that we call this existential stuff in the, in my palliative care world, which is simply just saying an existential crisis is another way of saying a, a crisis of meaning and a threat to our existence tends to cause to summon this crisis of meaning. But so that's been the way and that's been uh, throughout my career why one of the main reasons I was attracted to palliative care was because it explicitly dealt with a subject like meaning and good luck finding that anywhere else in the medical world. So that lens, that portal is big, robust, fascinating, spiritual, philosophical, it's many, many things that really blows open the doors of traditional kind of medical approach and I love it. But even as I say that, by the way, Ksenia, I mean, I have come around to uh, also, yes, meaning's great. Cool. Love it. If we can find it or make it, great. It's a very compelling way through life, to, a force to pull us through life. And I've also, I'm very increasingly need to feel the need to kind of point out or make space for meaninglessness. I don't know that all this, you know, sometimes meaning just is yet another made up thing. We put together a narrative has beginning, middle and end causation. And, you know, it allows us to stay, if we're not careful, the lens of meaning will force us to stay intellectual or construct or in the world of constructs, the world of thought, you know, too cerebral. I think that we need to be careful that I love narratives. I love what we do with our stories, but I also see how people get trapped in their stories and that stories can be limiting and narrowing. And so I have found it really important to stake a claim, make, make a point whenever I talk to patients or families or others around this sort of meaning-making enterprise and existential crisis to part of the job is, yeah, let's, let's make some new meaning. Let's create some, sure. 
And let's hold space for when you can't find any meaning or make any meaning or there's none to be seen and you just don't know why the hell you're here, why you're doing what you're doing. That's, That's good too. That is a robust fertile zone. So I have I so anyway I'm kind of going on here a little bit but this is all background. So this is a way my own thinking has evolved in a clinical setting and working with people to both find meaning and accept when they can't find meaning or make it. Both both sides are important. It's sort of like so many things in the, that a, my work has taught me or palliative care has taught me, you know, like Sure, mitigate your regrets, you know, minimize your regrets. Regrets are no fun. But, or same with fear, you know, sure, uh, let's find a way to turn down the noise of fear and become less burdened by it or less, you know, whipsawed by it. But I don't think the goal here is to become fearless or regretless. You know, maybe if you can get there, that might sound good. But those seem like, you know, essential human experiences too. So I feel the need to minimize regret and fear at the same time, welcome regret and fear at the table too. Both seem important. And psychedelics, so that's all preamble. So psychedelics, you know, has helped me kind of clarify that and also touch that. So one of the things I've loved about my own experiences has been where this idea of getting underneath my thoughts of touching a world that doesn't need a narrative or I can't find it or I can't even find myself or self, ego, all these constructs, thoughts, intellect, all this stuff. Beautiful. It's great. We humans, it's incredible what we can do with our brains. And, and we're not just our thoughts. We're not, life is bigger than our thoughts will likely allow us to feel. So, one of the great things has been to touch that, to get that out of the intellect and to feel this place where we, where everything is, is okay. It doesn't need a story even. Sure, rewrite your story, but also learn to live without a story. That to me, if you can do all of that, then you're really cooking. And, you know, then everything is okay, really. Both your neurotic clutchings for stories, but also the world beyond your neurosis. So that is something that psychedelics have helped me touch on, articulate, and more importantly, feel. So I find them incredibly useful that way, a way to get out of my head and to to feel life. I have pointed others to psychedelics for exactly that same reason. Sorry for that long going on there, but does that light up for you, Ksenia? Totally. No, I'm so there with you. And there's a few questions that arose as you were sharing that. And one of them is, um, you know, you started this story with talking about meaning and the humans make meaning. And sometimes it's important to let go of the meaning. And I'm curious with your story and with the accident that happened and the meaning that you've given it within your own life story, have you been noticing that meaning shift over the years? Or was there one moment where you feel like it revealed itself to you? And it got filed in a folder, and it has stayed that. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great, great question. I mean, I, in my mind, you know, I think this is. I think I have so thoroughly integrated uh, my injuries into my life, so I, I truly no longer see anything missing there. When I look at my missing limbs, I don't actually see missing myself missing anything anymore. So time has helped with that. Hard work has helped with that. Love has helped with that. But so now, 
I don't know, for how many years now, the story, you're right, I have gone about making meaning from those experiences. And that was very therapeutic. And it's also kind of done, like for me, like that, that work, that was a nice stepping stone that wheeled me forward and, and got me here in a lot of ways. And I've graduated from the need to, for that meaning around my injuries anymore. Now, in my mind, it's one of the reasons I don't mind talking about the, my injuries publicly so much is because they have a life for others on some level. They're, they're symbolic to others. And that, that meaning is, is outside of myself in so many ways. I don't track it. I don't necessarily even mind whatever meaning people make from my, my story, my, my injuries, my disability, my body. That belongs to them. So I, I don't mind. I, I like kind of exposing myself in this way. And yeah, you guys do whatever you want with the story. I've already had my day with the story around it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like the highest level of artistry, where you're present with creation, and then you let it out into the world, and you let it let it do its thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's right. And I feel very, and that feels very good. That feels right on. It does feel like a like a uh, like a, there's there's a I've gotten far with this, and and it's kind of dumped me out in this big open valley that where you know. I'm much more free to play with all these things. I don't have I don't have to stick to a story anymore or reify it. it just can be whatever the hell it's going to be for anybody else. Yes. If there was something, a message or a motto or something that you would like to leave people with, what would it be? And also there's no pressure for it to be anything rather than first thing that comes to mind. Mm. Well, a phrase that uh I hit upon for myself, I don't know, 10 years ago when I was at Zen Hospice Project. Uh, and it's I've circled back to this phrase because someone recently asked me a similar question that made me think. And so it's at the tip of my tongue right now. And it's apropos what we've just been talking about, which is simply that we are freer than we think we are. I love that reminder. And it also kind of helps, implies that, that thoughts can be part of the problem around freedom as much as the solution. So yeah, I think that's my answer to your question today, Ksenia, is we are freer than we think we are. That's beautiful. And is there anything that you've wished that you got asked more that you find people don't usually ask you? Well, I think today's conversation has been wonderful for me because it's one way and another, we've gotten to stuff that I don't normally get to. And I love that. I mean, this sort of my own process, like oftentimes, for example, in interviews and, you know, people want to know my sort of in stories around my injury and the, the sort of meaning thread that you and I touched on, but didn't, you know, waste too much time on, you know, that's where a lot of people just stay is with that story. And that's fine. I, I say, I understand it's got its place in the world and that pulls in people's interest and that, you know, so great. That's all fine. But, you know, you didn't do that today. We didn't do that today. We went elsewhere. That feels really good. So no, I'm sure I'll think of something later that we could have talked more about or blah, blah, blah. But no, for today, it's been lovely. I'm so grateful to go where we've gone. So before we wrap up, is there anything at all that you feel called to share? Hmm. Part of me says no. Part of me says make sure to say how much you love love and how much that's a force. No one, if we n learn nothing else, if we learn how to love and be loved, that's, that'll do the trick just through just about anything. 
And part of me wants to say, you know, encourage any of your listeners to, if, you know, if this kind of thinking lines up for you, you know, part of me wants to kind of just point people to palliative care as a, as a discipline and not just as a medical discipline, but as a philosophy that allows for thoughts like these and for allows for a sense of belonging in the world like we've been discussing. And the palliative care world definitely needs to grow. We need more minds and bodies and feelings participating in this kind of work. So part of me was just point people to palliative care. So anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Those I'll just drop those little tidbits in. But otherwise, no, it's just been this by all by itself has been nothing but a wonderful experience for me, Ksenia. Thank you, BJ. And all of those parts of you are welcome. And this is another reason I love social media is because we can, within one 15-second post on Instagram, within one short video, we can show the playful side of us. We can talk about our experience with love, and we can point people to what we do if they want to connect further with it. So there's all these dimensions that can be so beautifully weaved in and brought together to reach people's hearts without them having to seek it too much. Mm-hmm. Well, right on. You're going to make a believer out of me at some point here, Ksenia. <laughs> if you ever want to talk more about this, I really welcome that. You're going to make me, yeah, you're going to make me, <laughs> yeah. Great. Great. Thank you. I might take you up on that. Awesome. The one question that I'm called to, you know, see if there's anything else that wants to come through is love. You brought the importance of allowing ourselves to love and be loved. How does that look like in your daily life? Mm, it's a, oftentimes a great struggle. For me, I think the harder part of that math is being love. I said earlier in our conversation about how I watch myself sometimes guard against it because it comes with expectations or projections and difficult for me to trust affections past a certain point, etc. But I realize that as, as thoughtful as I may try to trying to be, I I really have a I sometimes struggle to let love in, to let myself feel it rather than try to be the source of it towards others. And I don't, and I know that I'm sure I'm not alone in that math. I think it's easy to say, oh, everyone wants to be loved. Yeah, I do too. Sure. But I don't know how to do that oftentimes. And sometimes it just seems to invite disaster or misunderstanding or all sorts of other things. So I will simply say that I struggle with it. And this is probably another one of those works in progress um, that, you know, I think I, before I die, I hope, I hope, I hope I really learn to consistently let love in as much as put it out. I see the fullness of that for you. And I'm also curious if you've, you've ever met alpacas and if you haven't, And if you ever come to the East Coast, I would love to take you to my favorite alpaca farm that has taught me more about unconditional love than a lot of human interactions. Hmm. Well, that sounds great to me. Yeah, (laughs) I would love that. That sounds great. Beautiful, BJ. Thank you so much for showing up with so much presence and sharing from your heart. I could really feel it. And I know everyone listening could too. And thank you for trusting yourself in doing what you do in the world. Well, thanks, Ksenia. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to some other moment down the road. I might take you up on all this conversation around more about social media or who knows what, but I am very glad to be connected, and thanks for all your beautiful questions today. Thank you, BJ. Have a beautiful weekend. 
and for being with me. You too. Okay, bye, Ksenia. Bye-bye. And thank you, Jasmine, for connecting us. Yes, shout out to Jasmine. If you're moved by what was shared in this episode and not sure how to take action, start by writing down what moved you. When we notice abundance in all shapes and forms and honor it, it grows. And if you're called to share the podcast with someone who you know is ready to receive it, follow that. Find all episodes, show notes, and current offerings on FundedBySource.com. Subscribe to Funded by Source on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating and a review. And take one deep breath into the knowing that's already within you.